That was a bit of a blink and you'll miss it kind of uh, reading. Uh, some of you might still be looking for it in your Bibles. Um, but uh, here's the key thing that I wanted you to notice in that. There's several things. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I have to admit, I don't really like talking about giving. I don't know if anyone does, really. Maybe some do. The ones who do, you want to watch out for. Because, uh, <laughs> not because I don't think it's important. I think giving's really important, and I hope you'll understand that. But I feel like there's a really fine line to tread between encouraging people to give and wanting to exploit people. Uh, so I sort of want to start with that caveat before I say anything else, that I think God is always opposed to people being exploited. And if we are being cheerful givers, then we have to be doing it out of our own choice and not because we're being extorted or coerced or any of that. So, now I've got that off my chest. <laughs> I've got a question for you. You can answer it out loud or in the quietness of your own heart if you like. What does it cost to be the church? What does it cost to be the church? Ooh. Oh, no, I want to know what you mean now. Go on. Right, okay, so you don't pay for the heating bill. So it doesn't cost you anything. You just get somewhere warm to sit on a Sunday evening. Brilliant. What? It's cozy. It's lovely. I've been in colder. Um, great. Well, uh, maybe Chris can have a word with you later if you need to. But, um, well, we'll come back to that question. But I think it's important that we, think that, that we understand that what we do with our money is a reflection of what we value. Advertisers spend billions and billions on what someone once said it was called it taking up real estate in our minds. Like that drip, drip, drip of seeing the McDonald's adverts. Or I was terrified that, that Esme, my daughter, she really loved watching Junior Bake Off uh, and Bake Off, just any baking shows really. And so we thought, this is harmless, we'll let her watch this. And then one day we were on the bus and she looks out the window and she just goes, Domino's! And what's the, what's the strap line for Domino's? Does anyone know? I've forgotten. But she knew it word by word because the advertising had been taking up real estate in her head. Advertisers are there to convince us that the thing that they're selling, has someone remembered what the strap line is? What? That wasn't what she did, but yeah. Uh, where was I? I've lost myself now. The, 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 the thing, the brand that they're selling is worth us caring enough to part with our hard-earned cash. So what do we spend our money on? Maybe a house? Maybe a car? On our family? And then Google and Facebook and Twitter, they're not, they're not just generous people who want us to have a nice time online. They want to sell all of that precious data about our lives so that people can market stuff to us. So all of this is about trying to convince us 
that these things are worth giving our money to. But what if we got captivated by something else? What if something else made all of those things pale into insignificance? What would we do with our money then? Jesus tells a story about a man who goes out and sells everything because he's discovered a pearl of great worth. And he sells all of, his, all of his wealth and all his possessions and everything just so he can have that one pearl. He's so caught up in the value of the kingdom of God that suddenly everything else loses its value. Another thing that Jesus said is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What if we found that one thing that transformed our entire value system? Not because we want anything in return, but because we're so captivated, we're so wrapped up in it that we can't help but find that our priorities have shifted and changed. That's what has happened to the women in this evening's passage. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, some others who remain unnamed, these women, we're told, were traveling with Jesus. And it's odd in a way, because they're not being described in quite the same terms as the disciples. They're not the ones who are apparently who are following Jesus and who have given up everything to follow Jesus. They're the ones who are bankrolling Jesus and his disciples. And although it's only a couple of verses here, we've got a little window into their motivation. They have been cured of evil spirits and diseases. They have had an encounter with Jesus which in some way has changed them. They've been healed. They've been saved. They've been transformed. And their, res their response is to give out of their own resources and to follow him. And I imagine they didn't take much persuading. I imagine that they were like, I've been cured. What, how can I help? How can I be part of this? You don't need to talk me into parting with my money. In a way, it's just the obvious response. And it was a way that they could be involved in the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. And we're not, we're not very often told about these women who were following Jesus. This is the only time that Susanna is mentioned, so we don't know anything else about her. We don't know the names of a lot of them. We don't really know what the source of their income was, although I find there's something really interesting, isn't there, that Joanna's husband worked in Herod's household. So does that mean that Herod was bankrolling Jesus? That's exciting, isn't it? We don't know if they were considered disciples in quite the same way as the 12 disciples that we always think of. We don't know if they traveled around with Jesus or whether they just sort of stayed in one place and when Jesus came to town, they threw a party for him. But they certainly went on a journey with him in the sense that they were there with him all the way to the cross. They didn't just give their money and then sit back and think, well, I've done a good deed. 
They were there, standing at the crucifixion. In Luke 23, 49, it says, the women were there, standing at a distance. I wonder if they felt at that moment, having poured all of their money and resources into Jesus and Jesus' ministry, whether maybe they'd backed the wrong horse. Had they put all their money into a failed Messiah? It doesn't seem so because they didn't abandon him. Because Joanna and Mary Magdalene were among the women who went to anoint his body on Easter morning. And they were the ones who found an empty tomb. They were the ones who first preached the good news of Jesus' resurrection to the apostles. In fact, it's possible that Joanna was the same person as Junior, the woman that Paul describes as first among the apostles. There is no sense that they were just giving money and then standing back and leaving the rest to other people. They were all in, and their giving was an expression of that commitment. In fact, if you weigh up giving money and giving time and energy and effort and reputation to follow Jesus, maybe the money's the easiest part. And throughout the whole of the Gospels, actually, what we do with our money is considered a really deeply moral, ethical, theological matter. Jesus taught about how it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He challenged the rich young ruler to give up everything he had and to follow him. And because the rich young ruler couldn't, he went away sad. He told a story about a farmer who hoarded up all of this wealth on earth and then died and found that he couldn't take a cent of it with him. He disrupted the exploitative moneylenders in the temple and he was betrayed by the disciples' treasurer. What we do with our money matters. In the New Testament, I read this earlier, that 27% of mentions of wealth are as spiritually dangerous. And that 41% of mentions of wealth are about it being something that we should share with the poor. We're really used to thinking about discipleship as challenging maybe what we do with our spare time, with our relationships, our prayer lives, our bodies. But what about our money? Surely what we do with our cash is the most revealing thing of what we value. So please don't think of giving money as an additional burden on top of following Jesus or something that we can do instead of following Jesus. I hope that goes without saying. We give because we are all in, and that impacts on every single part of our lives. But giving is also a discipline. We're not all like Scrooge who wakes up one morning and suddenly is like, buy the turkey, or whatever it is. We, like, it takes us some time to part with the things that we love it's a little bit like going to the gym. I've never had a gym membership, so this is an illustration that is entirely not from my own life. <laughs> um, but 
when you go to, I've heard, when you go to a gym, you pay for the membership. Is that right? That seems insane to me. Why would anyone pay to exercise? But you pay to, you pay to go to the gym, and then having paid to go to the gym, you're a little bit like, well, I don't really want to go to the gym, but I have spent some money on it, so I guess I probably should go to the gym. And then after a while, you go to the gym a bit more and a bit more and a bit more, and then you realize, that, oh, actually, that money was probably worth, the, it was worth spending that money on that thing. <laughs> There's some recognition going on there. Or you go, I've given a lot of money to the gym, and they haven't got anything to show for it. I suppose that's the alternative. But... Um, the first thing is deciding that actually your own health and fitness is worth investing in. And then we give the money, and then having given the money, we discover that actually we are becoming fitter and healthier. I think that giving is a little bit like that. We have to exercise it. It's a muscle. We have to do it so that we discover just how generous we can be and just how good it is to be generous. We discover the joy in sharing from what we have and as we adjust, maybe to having a little bit less to live on for ourselves, so we think about the money differently. You may have heard this before, but I think it's worth repeating, especially for young people, which I don't count as anymore. Don't wait until you have got enough money to start giving, because you never will. Learn to give now whatever it is that you've got. Think about what it would mean to just be a little bit more generous. What would be the transformative way of, spending, of giving my money? Because you may not think that you have enough. But what you do have is time, skills, and probably some cash in your bank account. It's not ours to hoard. It's not ours to hold on to. It's God's. And please note that I am saying God's. I'm not saying it's the church's. Now, I might get into trouble for saying this. But I want God to lead you to greater generosity. Not well-intentioned ministers. Because I don't actually think that giving to Jesus and giving to the church are exactly the same thing. Sharing what we have together as a community of Christians is certainly part of what it means to be church. But the church shouldn't be the beginning and end of our giving. We should prayerfully consider how we can share the wealth that we've received and discover new ways to give and become invested in the lives of whoever it is is receiving from us. I'm aware that the treasurer might look nervous at that, and we're keeping this ancient building warm. It is warm, I promise. We have, we have a PA system, we have staff, and we run all sorts of activities and ministries, and all of those depend upon the generosity of committed people. And if you are warm, but you haven't given any money to the church, that's because someone else has given money to the church, so you can be warm. And we all share the responsibility of making sure that that money is being spent really wisely and stewarding 
the generosity that people have been inspired to give. And we want to make sure that people who are working for the church are getting a reasonable salary and that they have the resources that they need to do their jobs well. We need to make sure that when people gather together, they can meet in a church that is comfortable and not freezing cold. (laughs) But none of that is essential to being church. And that's why, in part, as a church, we give to mission partners. Because we don't want to be just take, 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 take. We want to model as a church that generosity that we hope to see in individuals. So, to come back to my original question, what does it cost to be a church? Well, Chris can probably tell you the answer to this. It's about £200,000 a year. There we go. (laughs) Hannah's like, oh, I feel guilty for feeling warm now. Um, But in another way, it's free. It does not cost us anything to give our lives to Jesus, except all of our lives. Because the most challenging answer to that question is, of course, it costs everything. What we need to be church is people who have been captured by the love and the healing power of Jesus Christ and who are compelled to follow Jesus wherever he may lead them. A church who have found that having encountered Christ, they're no longer captivated by the things that the world compels them to spend their money on, but they want to give it all up for something of eternal value.